Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, yesterday, Premier Doug Ford asked the federal government to help Toronto Transit Project funding. No mention of Hamilton's LRT, though, and Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is not a happy camper. Well, should we be panicking over COVID-19? It's a question everybody seems to be pondering these days. We chat with Andrew Cadell, who is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And Hamilton police have made changes to their online hate reporting tool. They say the web feature is going to make it easier for the public to report hate crimes and incidents. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are waiting, I guess, as we head toward the end of the month, uh, the uh, recommendations from the Transportation Task Force that's working here in Hamilton, of course. So Tony Valeri is the chair of that, and uh, Tony's been a guest on the program a couple of times as they go through the process. Uh, we will not see that uh, because it's confidential. That's what we're told, anyway. Uh, that group will hand their report over to uh, the provincial government, of course, to the Transportation Ministry. Uh, they will determine uh, where that billion dollars is going to be spent here in Hamilton. Now, there are they still those people, notwithstanding the announcement from the uh, the government on December that they were canceling their their support for LRT here in Hamilton. There are still people that are holding out hope against hope, I guess, that one of the recommendations from that Transportation Task Force will be to get back on track with LRT. Well, if you're one of those people... Uh, well, what the Premier said yesterday is probably not very good news. Later this week, I'll be going up to Ottawa. I'll be taking a delegation of my ministers with me, Team Ontario. We will meet with the Prime Minister and our federal counterparts. We will lay out Ontario's priorities and expectations in advance of the federal budget. We will continue to call on our federal partners to work with us, to help us advance the projects and priorities that matter most. We want them at the table with us as full partners as we move ahead with these historic subway projects. Of course, uh, the Premier is talking about the Toronto subway projects. Not a word about Hamilton's transportation needs, but he's going cap in hand to talk to the federal government about getting money. Didn't seem to want to do that for Hamilton's LRT project. Interesting, isn't it? Let's ask uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger how he feels about that. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Mayor, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Uh, nice to be with you as well, Bill. Thank All right. You. Okay. Uh, th- let's cut to the chase here. What have you done to tick off the Premier? Because he just doesn't seem to, to have Hamilton in mind, or if he does, it's for all the wrong reasons. Well, you know, more and more it seems to be uh, this is a political this is a political issue. So, you know, is the, is the Premier punishing uh, the, uh, the official opposition, Andrea Horvath, and the uh, three other NDP members in the city of Hamilton and saying, you know what, as long as there are NDP members in the city of Hamilton, uh, you know, they're not going to be uh, funding any projects for the city. More and more, it seems to be not a costing issue. It seems to be more a political issue. You know, when you look at uh, your Ontario that came in at, uh, you know, some $600,000 more in terms of capital costs, totally funded uh, by the province of Ontario, it came in at $4.5 billion all in, life cycle and capital costs, no problem, approved. When it comes to you know GTA projects uh, in Toronto, the, so they've, they've morphed from LRTs to subways. Subways are ten times the cost of LRTs. No problem. We'll we'll fund those. And when it comes to a project that's been in the queue for twelve years, two months away, three months away from uh, procurement in the city of Hamilton, suddenly there's a there's an inflated number thrown out there, and this is about cost. It it just doesn't jive. It uh, makes no sense at all. And uh, I would say this is starting to look more like a political ploy rather than a, a costing costing exercise. Well, how do you deal with something like that? 
uh, uh, well, straight straightforward in my view. Uh, you know, clearly we've uh, we've made the case to them that uh, this was an irrational decision on their part. They've not yet come forward with the numbers, but we know full well that the numbers are more in the area of three, three and a half billion dollars. No, no different than all the other projects that have been funded across the province in terms of capital costs and life cycle costs. And so we're going to continue to, to highlight those uh, issues, continue to uh, talk about, uh, you know, the different, the, the, the similarities between the your, your Ontario project or all the other LRT projects that are happening across the province. And, uh, you know, asking the question, why? Why Hamilton? Why, uh, why, why not have uh, Hamilton get moving as well? If they want the province of Ontario to get moving, it's not just about Toronto. It is also about Hamilton and Kitchener-Waterloo and Ottawa and all the other major cities in our community that also need investments in their public transit, transit systems. And, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, I have spoken to the federal government, uh, they're open to an ask. They've said that on many occasions. I've spoken to the minister, McKenna, uh, former former Hamiltonian, now uh, elected in Ottawa, and Minister of Infrastructure as we speak, has said, you know, we're open to uh, to overtures from the province of Ontario, and what we hear from the province is premature. Premature? This has been a 12-year project. Uh, you know, what's premature is the, uh, the, the, the notion that they're, they're only focused on Toronto and, and really not caring about the rest of the province. I wanted to ask you about that 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 one phrase that just jumped right out there that the, the Hamilton's ask or the, the request even is is in their minds premature. Any explanation at all from from the government as to what they mean by that? No, I, I've not had an opportunity to ask them that. And uh, you know, I I mean, as far as I know, they're flying by the seat of their pants on this one. I think they they know that the, the numbers don't add up. They know that uh, this is a, a long-standing project that has the majority support of the citizens of Hamilton. Uh, you know, whoever's convinced them that uh, that isn't isn't the case is uh, is not reading the tea leaves correctly. Uh, you'll recall the election, uh, you know, a, a year and a half ago, that uh, you know some some decided to make it all about LRT. Well, the reality is that uh, that uh, this current mayor, I'm not, I'm not blowing my own horn here. This is just a fact. Won 219 out of the 230 polls in the uh, city of Hamilton, uh, and LRT was the central issue that people were uh, were making their decision on. So they're they're uh, they're really out to lunch on this one. If if their if their whole mantra is we we just want to fund projects in Toronto, well then they're they're meeting success on that, but they're leaving behind other parts of the province, especially Hamilton, when it comes to the kinds of transit investments that are not only good for transportation but good for the redevelopment and growth of the city of Hamilton. So very, very important. So why they don't understand that is beyond me. Uh, they're either put the blinders on or, or they're just willfully, willfully ignorant of the facts that, uh, that surround this project. I, I mean, whether you're for or against LRT, and, and there are factions on both sides, as we well know, of course, in this community, but the fact is, you know, there's a design that was agreed upon by the province and with Metrolinks. Land has already been purchased uh, for the construction of this. The design work has already started. So to call this premature is, is just, it's just, a, it's just wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's an unfair characterization of, of where this project is. Right. And it's, uh, I mean, you're, you're 100% right. And it was, uh, you know, months away from the close of the procurement process. So the bids were being drafted and drawn up as, as they were speaking about canceling this thing. They were in the middle of finalizing their bids. And a month before they finalized those, or were working on finalizing those bids, they offered up a, 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 a closing fee to the, uh, to the bidders. 
so they, you know they said to them, "Look, we uh, we don't have a break fee in this contract. We're gonna, we're going to put one in so that if we cancel this project, you're you're going to get money to cover the cost of you putting a bid together." Uh, it doesn't make any sense at all in terms of uh, you know how they how how they proceeded on this. They months before that opened up the acquisition of more property, allowed for the continuation of uh, of uh, you know willing buyer willing seller acquisitions and. All of those properties now, some 60 of them are sitting there, uh, derelict and empty and uh, with painted, painted windows, uh, waiting to, uh, to, to get an answer from the province of Ontario as to what they're going to do with the, uh, with these, with these now, now empty and, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, looks unsightly, uh, buildings that were there ready and uh, willing and able to get on with the, the, uh, the development of the LRT. So premature is, I mean, I, I don't know where they're getting these words. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, my understanding is, as I'm reading about uh, some of the questions the NDP are asking, is that when they canceled this project, they hadn't even spoken to Metrolinx about it. And Metrolinx was the agency that actually advanced this in the first place. Do you still hold out hope that this is going to happen? I, I mean, you know, we're waiting, as I mentioned just before you joined us, uh, for the Transportation Task Force report. And we're not even going to see it, according uh, they're they're going to send it off to the ministry, and uh, the ministry said they're probably not going to show it to anybody in the public. They're just going to make a determination. Do you still think that LRT is going to be one of those recommendations? Uh, I think I think so. I think uh, you know sensible people with uh, with uh, you know good information uh, will come to the same conclusion that uh, that the uh, citizens' jury came to that uh, was put together uh, you know after the. The, the election previous to last, that, uh, that people had some doubts about LRT, and we said, okay, we're going we're gonna to create a citizen's jury, uh, bring citizens in from across the city, uh, you know, two from every ward uh, in the city of Hamilton, and they came to the same conclusion that LRT was the, uh, the best possible investment for the city of Hamilton. I think that uh, five people with uh, good information, and if they're, uh, they're looking at city building and looking at improving transportation in the city of Hamilton will also come to the same conclusion. But I don't know, because apparently this open and transparent provincial government isn't very open and transparent. And so they're, uh, you know, they're working in secrecy right now. And, uh, you know, I think that's a very unfortunate uh, dilemma that the city faces. And uh, it's very unfair to the citizens of Hamilton to be left in the lurch in, in this way when they see all these other other projects happening in, in the uh, GTA and in Mississauga, uh, projects that all have billions of dollars attached to them, uh, you know, why is it successful and why is it worthwhile to do in Toronto or in Mississauga and not in Hamilton? I think I think it's it's just unfair. It's uh, bad politics in my view. Uh, this is not uh, not understanding the uh, the mood of the city of Hamilton by majority. I know there's people that are opposed. Uh, you know, we work in a democracy, and democracy says the majority uh, rules. At the end of the day, the majority uh, of the citizens of Hamilton decided that LRT was something they wanted to advance. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that this uh, task force of five uh, will make a recommendation that uh, that maybe looks at a different funding formula as opposed to, you know, LRT is not the right project. LRT is the right project. Maybe the federal government needs to step up and put some dollars into the project as well, as well as the private sector. Well, and again, that's the frustration. I mean, for all we know, the the Transportation Task Force may recommend LRT and simply say, dump all the money back in there. You guys made a big mistake. We'll never know. 
because we'll, we'll never know what those recommendations are because the government just doesn't seem to want to, to part no. with that information. The other element of this, though, Mr. Mayor, that, uh, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past, and, and it's, it's a, a problem here where it's creating bridges between levels of government. Uh, and I know that, you know, in, in your time in office, you've reached out to the federal government numerous occasions and you've talked to local ministers uh, that are in the cabinet about the, the, the needs that Hamilton has. Uh, there doesn't seem to be that communication line between Queen's Park and Hamilton right now. I, I, uh, how, do you, how do you deal with this? I mean, you, you can't just, just say, well, they're, just not, they're going to ignore us. Uh, that's not sustainable. There's got to be some communication. And there's got to be some partnership here. We're not seeing a whole lot of that. No, unfortunately, we're not. And uh, you know, I've reached out to the uh, to the minister, and I've uh, you know asked asked for you know meetings. Uh, they, you know, prior to them canceling this thing, they they made a, you know a lot of claims around that we had meetings. Well, those meetings didn't amount to much of anything other than uh, you know we have some uh, presumptive numbers that uh, estimates that we you know we can't describe to you, but we think that the cost might be a little higher. Uh, that is not a way to uh, to develop a partnership, and uh, you know we've been uh, totally open to uh, having the premier here, uh, having a conversation about these issues, uh, min- meeting with uh, Minister Mulroney. Uh, previous to that, Minister Urick that uh, that did came- come to Hamilton and and actually reannounced that the uh, the LRT was on track and we're going to open up the the land acquisition process again. So it's hard to uh, to. You know, get a get a bead on uh, you know what their objective is and what their agenda is for Hamilton, uh, but uh, you know at some point they're going to have to come clean on uh, you know where where they're intending to go, uh, and what they're going to what they're intending to do for the citizens of Hamilton because uh, there is an election a couple of years from now, and then when you asked me the question earlier about uh, you know is LRT actually going to happen, sooner or later it's going to happen, uh, you know if it uh, if it isn't this government it'll be the next government, uh, if if they do not decide. <clears throat> to to move forward on LRT at this point, we'll not see the billion dollars. There's not a billion dollars lying around that they're going to throw at Hamilton. It, and, you know, if it is going to happen, it'll be tied up in uh, environmental assessments and all kinds of studies that need to be done. It took 12 years to get to the procurement point for LRT. It'll take many, many years to get to a procurement point on any billion-dollar project that they're going to throw out here. So, don't don't hold your breath that uh, that uh, this billion dollars is going to flow to the city of Hamilton anytime soon. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Well, we'll see how the government responds. I mean, they've already responded, obviously, saying it was premature, which I think is a ridiculous uh, re- re- response to this thing. But uh, clearly, there's uh, another shoe to drop here, and uh, maybe that's going to be after the uh, they get their hands on this report at the end of the month. We'll uh, certainly talk to you about that then. Thanks for the time today, Mr. Mayor. Okay, Bill. Have a good one. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, uh, upset, obviously, with the provincial government and upset with the, uh, well, lack of uh, understanding, I guess, is maybe the best way to characterize it. A- and again, whether you're for or against the project at this stage, the fact is, is that we're not getting the respect. I mean, we seem to be the Rodney Dangerfield of, of, of the provincial government right now, you know, not getting any respect from anybody here. And, uh, and it's an awfully frustrating experience, obviously, because uh, we've talked at length, of course, about the financial problems that are facing Hamilton and just about every other city. And Toronto certainly seems to be getting their needs addressed by this provincial government. Hamilton, not so much. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Carmen's making announcements about uh, compensation packages and some assistance uh, for workplaces and uh, workers that are going to be impacted uh, by the COVID-19 virus that uh, obviously is starting to spread even more. Should we be concerned? Should we panic about this? I mean, a lot of people, I think, are in panic mode right now. It's a question that's been pondered over the last few days, of course. 
Uh, yesterday, I'm sure you've seen this, it's pretty much gone viral. Uh, an Italian doctor warned other countries to take the necessary steps to halt the spread of the virus, uh, saying that this could actually turn into a worldwide pandemic, uh, which got a, little, a number of people concerned about that. So where should we be on this, on the, on the concern versus uh, panicking uh, scale here? I mean, it, it's, it's a question that, that I think everybody's asking these days, and statistics can be awfully alarming. I want to bring uh, Andrew Cadell into the conversation to talk about this. Uh, he's a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, uh, recently senior policy advisor at the North American Policy and Relations uh, with uh, uh, Global Affairs Canada, of course. Uh, has worked with the World Health Organization oftentimes, including, by the way, some of the more infamous or famous, I guess, uh, diseases that have been in Africa and pandemics or epidemics uh, that we've been reading about in the news for the last couple of days. And it'd be great to get uh, Andrew's perspective. I'm so pleased to welcome him to the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. Uh, in this uh, era of, 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 I guess, information and sometimes misinformation, uh, a lot of people are confused these days about what we should do, what we should think. Well, good, good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I, I, for two years, I worked at the World Health Organization with uh, Dr. Bruce Aylward, who was uh, a friend and a colleague, and who is now in the position of uh, leading the fight against uh, COVID-19. I have uh, enormous faith in Bruce. He's uh, uh, one of the top doctors in the world, and he'll probably, he's right now the number two at the World Health Organization, and he's been given the job by the Director General to uh, to try to, I think, calm people's fears, but, but also make them uh, realize this is a, a, a serious issue. And uh, that's quite a delicate balance in many ways. Well, especially because of some of the, the stuff we're getting from, well, non-medical people. I mean, I'm talking about politicians. I, I, I get a little Nancy myself, Andrew, when I see a, a politician telling me how I should respond to this. If I want to get medical advice, I usually go to a doctor. I don't go to a, a prime minister or a president. And I, I think what we're hearing, and as well-intentioned as they might be, is probably just confusing people. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to make uh, Canada sound as if we're uh, better than anybody else, but at the very least, what you're seeing on, on television with the uh, uh, with with the broadcast from different provinces and the different provincial ministries of health is that the people who dominate uh, as spokespeople are the health professionals, and it's not the politicians. So you'll see the Minister of Health in B.C. standing aside while uh, uh, the spokesperson uh, makes uh, the comments, and she seems to be very, very rational, uh, very composed person who uh, understands the issue completely because she's been through this before. And I think that's a good thing. But I think listening to politicians, by and large, certainly listening to the head of state of the United States, uh, is probably not the best thing because uh, he has his own ideas as to uh, what this uh, uh, pandemic's about. And uh, I, I think uh, we just have to ignore that. Well, yeah, especially, I mean, when he gets up at the podium and contradicts the, the people from the Center for Disease Control, uh, who are the experts in this thing. I mean, like 10 seconds later. But anyway, uh, that's unfortunately a problem that, that the Americans are going to have to deal with. Uh, and I don't have a problem, by the way, with what the Prime Minister is doing right now, because that's the political end of things, offering assistance packages. But you, of course, with your experience, Andrew, uh, you take an analytical approach to this. I mean, you've been there, done that with some of these other things that have happened in the past. May, give us a, a background, our listeners, a little bit of a background on your experience with this. I mean, with Ebola and some of the other frightening uh, epidemics that have uh, happened in the past. Well, I was very lucky that I was working with some of the best doctors in the world. And uh, the very first day that I was working at the World Health Organization, I was really worried there was a possibility of uh, cholera in one of the uh, refugee camps in uh, Zaire after the uh, genocide in Rwanda. So this would be in the 1990s. And um, I was thinking, oh, you know, if there's cholera, my goodness, like 
hundreds of thousands of people are going to be wiped out or tens of thousands. And one of the doctors, a woman named uh, Maria Nero, who's still at the WHO and is, was a former deputy minister of health in Spain, took me aside and said, uh, Andrew, look, here's a circle. And this is something that people have to understand. Here's, here's the total population of these camps. Here's, and then she drew a smaller circle. Here's the possible number of people who are going to get sick. That's the morbidity number. And then here's the number of people who are, or, sorry, who are going to get cholera. Then there's, then there's the number of people who are actually going to get sick. And then there's the number of people who possibly will die. Well, the number of people who would die was 2.5%. And I always thought that cholera was going to, you know, could wipe out, you know, huge numbers of people. But the 2.5% was the 2.5% of the number who, uh, who got it. And the number who got it was going to be maybe 50%. So you have to look at this. It's the same thing with the, but Ebola, of course, which I actually I have I held a jar with the uh, kidneys from a chimpanzee that had Ebola. So that was kind of exciting. Although I was worried I might drop it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the um, and I went to a, a research camp where CDC Centers for Disease Control from Atlanta and WHO were collaborating in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, where there had been uh, Ebola, and I took some film crews and. Uh, was there for about a week and a half, and that was really quite an education because you you see you get a sense of what the vectors are, which is what you know what the original source of a disease can be. And in the case of Ebola, it was bats, and in the case of this uh, of COVID nineteen, I think it might be bats as well. And um, so you, like I say, you get a greater sense of of the morbidity, the mortality issues. In the case of Ebola at that time, Ebola was eighty percent uh, morbidity. That meant that meant that eight out of ten people would get sick. And the, the mortality numbers were in the 60 to 70% range. So it was almost a guarantee that you'd die if you got it. Um, but it was luckily not as contagious because it had to be passed by uh, touching, uh, well, you had to have uh, either subcutaneous wounds or you had to breathe in the aerosol. That means like the, 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 the sort of the, the steam that comes out of the body, or you had to actually touch the body. And unfortunately, there were burial rites in Africa where people did that. So more people got sick. So I, I, I was the information officer for the uh, epidemic in Gabon in 1997, I think it was, where about 300 people died. And they all died in the same community within about two weeks. Um, and But it didn't spread beyond that. Now, there have been uh, Ebola uh, uh, pandemics and epidemics subsequently in the Sierra Leone and parts in Guinea and parts of, uh, of Africa since, since then. Um, but luckily they have a Canadian lab in Winnipeg uh, found a vaccine, so uh, so that it's a little bit the morbidity and mortality numbers have, have now declined. Are they still using that formula that you've just described? Is is that what the World Health Organization is using as they analyze what's happening now? Yes, and that's actually a very very big issue right now because we really don't have a handle on how many people have come into contact with this, and you know it requires proper testing. Now in South Korea, their numbers are in the you know tens of thousands. And their death numbers uh, amount to about 0.06%, which is uh, twice, you know, to three times the flu. But it's, it's kind of encouraging in the sense that it's a small number. It's not the 4.3 or the 3.4 or even the 2.5 uh, that had been bandied about. So uh, it, what we really need is to get a handle on how many people get this. And how, so, and the numbers are, are really very wildly, like I've seen numbers... Uh, estimates from 30 to 70 percent of the population will become sick. Well, 30 percent becoming sick and 70 percent becoming sick. You do the math, you know, a 3 percent of 30 percent is going to be 0.9 percent, but 3 percent of 7 percent is 2.1 percent. 
So then you're talking about a much larger cohort of people. So that's that I think the first thing we need to really know is how many people actually do get sick from this of the population, and of the people who do get sick, uh, what uh, uh, how many people get uh, very ill, and it looks like it's the elderly are the ones that are most targeted, in a sense, and, and then of those, how many uh, fatalities there will be. And uh, right now, it's really anybody's guess, I think, and, and it really depends on the numbers of tests. Now, luckily in Canada, we have socialized medicine, so people can actually go and be tested. In the U.S., the problem is that they have to pay for the tests in many cases, and therefore they may, ne- ne- they may not get the test, and, um, and there'll be a lot more people who will die because they won't be able to self-quarantine or they won't be able to, uh, they will be passing it on to other people. Now, I would think this formula that you've explained here is, is an essential part of this uh, because it's going to help them. I know some people are going to say, oh, come on, you're just driving this down into a mathematical equation. But you need that to be able to, to I, I guess, to justify what kind of response governments and, and health agencies are going to do. Uh, you need those numbers to develop what kind of magnitude and, and where to direct that, wouldn't you? You do, and you do. And, you know, for example, in Italy, they don't really know how many people have, uh, have COVID-19. Their death numbers are, are, are enormous. But I was looking it up the other day. First of all, uh, people who smoke are very, very vulnerable to this. In China, 60% of doctors smoke, 52% of men smoke, 2.4% of women smoke. So the, the, the numbers in China was interesting. They were very, very heavily weighted towards men. In Italy, there are 25% of the population overall smokes. And they have the second largest percentage of the elderly people in the world. So you've got people who already have uh, problems with respiratory uh, respiratory issues, may have other respiratory illnesses, and they're elderly. So you 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 know you're, you've got a population that's going to be extremely vulnerable. In Canada, our population, the average is 14% of the population smokes. We have uh, significant numbers of elderly, but not uh, as significant as as a place like Italy, uh, and therefore you know we. Uh, it, it could be a serious problem for in, uh, intensive care units uh, of, of them being overloaded. But if uh, there's a, was a, there was a point that was put out by the public health agency uh, of Canada yesterday saying if people can self-quarantine and if they can recognize the, uh, the symptoms early, they can flatten the curve so the ICUs will be able to handle the numbers of, of, of people that may be at their doors. That's, that's a positive thing. And the other thing is that, you know, the one death that we've had in Canada uh, was a man in his 80s who had respiratory problems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, again, he's, a, he's like an ideal candidate for, uh, uh, for this bug. Um, the, the other thing that I find interesting is that it doesn't present itself, doesn't uh, uh, show itself as more than a common cold initially. Then it turns to the flu. Then it turns to, to pneumonia. So people are going to have to recognize this, that they do have a cold, that they should just keep away from other people, wash their hands, you know, do the things that the, the, the experts are saying in order to prevent the, the spread. And if we can prevent the spread, then the, the morbidity numbers will, will decline. And, you know, gener- and of course, as a result, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the mortality numbers will decline as well. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the Italian situation. We, yesterday in the program, we uh, talked to a, actually a Hamiltonian who's been living in Rome for the last five years, and she was explaining what was going on. And, and I, I know you've seen the data, and I've, I've certainly seen the pictures about 
Uh, the streets are almost deserted oftentimes simply because of the, of the quarantine that's been put on by the Italian government. But the more concerning aspect, I guess, uh, as you know, Andrew, is that the hospitals, I guess, are just filled to the brim right now. Uh, and they're concerned that if this does get out of hand, and it seems to be moving in that direction, they may not have the facilities uh, or the wherewithal to be able to handle these people. Then I see somebody uh, on one of the network shows the other day saying, look, that's what's going to happen here in North America. We're about 10 to 14 days away from that, and we're going to have the same problems with our health care facilities, uh, which is a rather ominous, uh, I guess, prediction to make. Uh, how, do you, how do you see this happening? I mean, is it inevitable that this is going to s- sweep uh, North America like it has here, or can we contain this? Well, I, I think that there's two elements to this. First of all, everybody sort of lumps North America into the same basket. And I, I think uh, we're very fortunate in Canada that we've got a lot of very good provincial public health officials that are on top of these things. And also, having gone through uh, SARS, uh, Ontario is especially wary. So that, uh, you know, there are people, uh, and, and everything after SARS, you know, the Public Health Agency of Canada was created. You had the labs in uh, Winnipeg that were developed, and, you know, you have the public health officer of, uh, of Canada, and then in, in Ontario and the other provinces, uh, they have uh, uh, really geared up. So they know pretty well what they're looking at, and they know what to anticipate. The one thing is to say that nobody knows is exactly how many people are going to get this. So, you know, to say it could be any, anywhere between 30 and 70%. If it were to be, uh, let's say it's going to be, if, if it were 50%, more uh, mortality, morbidity, thirty percent mortality, uh, morbidity uh, would be in Ontario would be about uh, six million people. That's a lot of people. Yeah, and and um, then and you have to worry about uh, how sick they are. So then you know there's there's ranges. Uh, it, it appears that young people don't get this at all. So you can discount pretty well, like a third of the population under under thirty, let's say, um, the population over. Uh, 80, which I would imagine is probably in Ontario about 20 to 25 percent, something like that. So that'd be a quarter of six million. That'd be 1.5 million. That those are the people that are are going to be really uh, it's going to be problematic, and that's a lot of people. Even even though it's a you know it's a it's a it's a quarter of well, let's say it's a quarter of 50 percent. That's still a lot of people. So um, um, I think people have, are going to have to follow what the public health agencies uh, say they're going to have to be very wary if they have the, any symptoms of a cold. There is such a thing as the flu season, and we can hope that maybe by June or July that this is going to be starting to peter out. Um, and uh, and the other thing is to say, because we don't have the, the same kind of population as, of elderly people as Italy do, we won't have the... Uh, uh, we have larger numbers. Uh, we have larger numbers in population, but we don't have that percentage of elderly. So it, it's, it's manageable within uh, old people's homes, you know, um, within communities of, of older people. We may have to quarantine some of those things, I think, but that's up to the public health officials to decide. In the United States, the problem is that people can't be tested. They won't be tested because they can't afford it. And um, and their president is telling people that, well, you know, you don't really have to worry. It's just like a cold or the flu. And therefore, I think it probably will be much more serious. And I think, you know, it, it might come to the possibility that... that uh, Canadian officials may have to look at closing the border, which would be really economically uh, difficult for us. Um, if, if, if the United States proves to have a much more serious uh, problem with, uh, with COVID-19 than we do. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's anybody's guess right now. I don't think it's going to happen within the next 
uh, 14 to 20 days because it change, it, it, it increases arithmetically. It doesn't increase exponent, exponentially, uh, which means, you know, like it doesn't double every day. But it is, I mean, we're, right now we're at 150,000 or 120,000 cases, I think. Of course, the number could probably be double or triple of that because we don't know actually how many people are sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, or who I've identified or not even figured, hey, I just got a flu bug, so what's the big deal? Uh, exactly. The more information we get on this, uh, I, I think the, the more you know, we, we get a grasp as to what we're dealing with here. And, uh, and obviously governments need to have that sort of information, too, as they track this. Andrew, thank you so much for the time today. I, I want to stay in touch with you because, as you say, this isn't going away anytime soon. Uh, and your perspective on this, I think, is just magnificent to be able to give us some, some ideas as to what we can expect and, and how to deal with this. Thanks so much for this. Well, today. I learned well from the best, and I would say everybody should be listening to what uh, Bruce Aylward says. Okay. Thanks again, Andrew. We'll talk soon. Okay. Andrew Cadell, of course, uh, uh, he wrote a great piece, by the way, that was in the Hill Times, the uh, newspaper that's uh, published up on Parliament Hill, and uh, said, yes, the coronavirus is a threat to health, but we should not panic. Now, it was about a month or so ago that he wrote that, but still, good information and uh, good perspective for a guy who's dealt with some of those great epidemics that we've talked about uh, that were in the African continent and other places in the world as well when he was working for the uh, the World Health Organization. We'll certainly tap into his expertise and uh, get some perspective from him as uh, this story develops, and it will continue to develop. As we mentioned, uh, the Prime Minister is making an announcement right now about uh, a funding formula and, and trying to help out businesses and people that are maybe going to have to lose their jobs or step away from their jobs uh, in quarantine situations. Uh, David Aiken, uh, of course, uh, chief global news correspondent in Ottawa, is at that press conference, and he's going to join us later on on the show to bring us up to speed on what's happening there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about a, a new tool that uh, Hamilton Police are using. Uh, Hamilton Police have apparently made changes to their new online hate reporting tool. Uh, they say that uh, this new web feature is actually going to make it easier for the public to report hate crimes and incidents. Uh, is this going to be an effective tool, and is it, is it really addressing some of the concerns, and I think very, very serious concerns that have been raised in this community over the last number of months and years, for that matter? Joining us to talk about this is Emil Joseph. Uh, jo- Emil, of course, is an assistant professor in the School of Social Work at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Emil, thank you for jumping in and joining us today. Really appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Let me. I, I'm going to get into the report, by the way, in a couple of seconds. But uh, the, the whole concept here about online reporting, uh, which may or may not be a good idea, I'll get your read on that. But what I'm hearing uh, f- consistently from people that report crimes, whether it's online or if it's done in person, uh, the concern they have there is the follow-up or the lack of follow-up in many cases. What, what, what's your read on that? Yeah, one of the primary reasons behind underreporting is a, a lack of faith in institutional authorities and law enforcement agencies who may not only fail to hold uh, the attacker accountable, but, but may also be hesitant to, to believe their account. Um, I think there are some leading practices on online reporting. Um, actually, there's a research project that I've been attached to for a number of months um, that is uh, going to come out with a, a report shortly. Um, that is a review of uh, online reporting mechanisms. And most of them are uh, run by independent institutions or based in the community. Um, and a lot of them address issues uh, that come through that aren't in the realm of hate crimes and hate incidents, but also capture that which might fa- fall under um, the Charter of Human Rights, the Canadian Charter of Human Rights, uh, or Ontario Human Rights, uh, on the Ontario Human Rights Code. 
um, as well as that which needs to be referred for immediate legal consult or immediate support, uh, that sort of thing. As you and you're doing that report, we look forward to the, the results of that, and I'm sure we'll talk about that once that's issued. But are there enough support services? I mean, when somebody actually reports a, a hate crime, uh, and and whether it's online or in person, doesn't much matter. Uh, you, you just raised something about support services and whether there's legal support, legal help for somebody who might be in a precarious situation like that. Uh, do we have all the tools that people need to be able to deal with the, these issues? Uh. One of the reasons for the establishment uh, and the advocacy for the Anti-Racism Resource Center was to address those needs so that when people are bringing forward these experiences, they're not just met with a online reporting mechanism or a survey um, or an inhuman kind of response, uh, but are offered immediate support um, and referrals and resources um, that are are or necessary responses, as well as follow-up. Um, there was a, a, a CBC Hamilton article yesterday where the deputy chief uh, reported that the new reporting system was a way for anyone to report hate or bias incidents uh, and that it would ensure appropriate resources are assigned to make uh, our communities safer. I think that um, might be a, an overclaim in that resources in that scenario look like they would be resource police resources rather than community resources to address hate uh, and bigotry in the community and offer supports for people who experience uh, incidents of hate. I think uh, if we're thinking about this um, and using the research and knowledge and literature out there and relying on expertise and relying on lived experience, then you're thinking about how to do this in holistic and compassionate ways, ways that meet the needs of people wherever they're at, and they don't always all fall under um, hate incidents and hate crimes. If somebody goes through an experience like that, uh, Emil, and, and feels disenfranchised and feels as, as if, well, they didn't do what I wanted them to do, I didn't think they, they followed through on this. I mean, there can be a number of variations on this, depending on the individual and whatever the, the hate crime was. Uh, they're going to be that much more hesitant, I guess, to come forward if they they, they were uh, victimized one more time. And this is where the, I think this thing falls off the tracks pretty quickly. Is is that if we're not getting a good read on this, and even you're right, Deputy Chief Burgard, I think, made that admission in the in the piece that we read uh, yesterday that uh, that a lot of these things, if not most of them, go unreported. Uh, then for them to come out with a report that says, well, hate crimes are really down in this city, uh, do we really know that to be true, or is it just because they're not being reported anymore? Yeah, I think um, it doesn't tell us a lot, so there's, there's not much we can infer from that kind of data. But if the reporting mechanisms are allowed to be diverse, diverse as the people they're, that they are responding to, then we can look at um, online reporting alongside other ways that people can engage services and help and support and resources. Um, you know, there's a diverse set of organizations and parties uh, the Anti-Defamation League, ProRepublica, University of Nevada, Georgetown, who all created online platforms for hate. Ireland has iReport. Uh, it's it's one of the most comprehensive, user-friendly uh, online reporting systems. So we've studied this. We know quite a, a bit about it. And But the police haven't asked us for our opinions on these matters just yet. I think 
Um, one of the unique things, uh, if you take the um, Ireland's Eye Report as an example, mm-hmm. they do uh, incident intake, but they also have a system where people can talk about how they're impacted um, and how it's in- interconnected with other factors. Um, there's also uh, information up front around confidentiality, what happens to people's information, uh, and some trust that there's going to be some follow-up, as well as immediate resources um, that help people explore institutional racism in the country. Uh, it includes descriptions um, of support and referral services for victims. There's a responding to racism guide attached to the system itself. So there's ways that these uh, reporting mechanisms can be done in a way that's holistic and interconnected with a range of services um, that address people's needs where they're at. And, and you're not asking people to reinvent the wheel here. I mean, there, there are prototypes available already that we could be learning from. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but heretofore, anyway, we haven't seen that much of it. And you raise a very interesting point about this, and I've heard this again when we've done panel discussions on this program about incidents of, of, of racism and hatred that uh, that pop up in this community. Uh, and that's the human element to this. Uh, you know, reporting something online uh, does not give the, the victim the opportunity to actually express how that incident affected them and how it might still be affecting them. And that's got to be a key part of this. Yeah, Um Actually, in the research report um, that we're writing, there is a section on dispelling the myths of underreporting and rethinking how we evaluate and theorize what's happening with underreporting. And some of the uh, discussion in that section are about people's uh, fear of not being taken seriously. Um, of being someone who's complaining about something in an area of work that could get them in trouble, so an experience of uh, like or a fear of persecution, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, the concept of microaggression that it might what they're experiencing might not uh, rise to the level of a hate crime or a hate incident, but it's something that still needs to be addressed. They still need support, um, and they still need to connect uh, with someone who can help them work through it. Um, some of those also contribute to how we underreport and why people underreport. There's another element to this too, and and again, when the police are analyzing this, and I've talked to Chief Gert about this uh, when we've talked about some of the past crimes that have been reported. Uh, there could be incidents that are reported that may don't maybe don't reach the threshold of saying, well, that's not really breaking a law, that's not illegal, but. The perception matters. The perception of the victim is very important in this process. Maybe it doesn't cross that threshold, but at the same time, if it has an impact on that individual and it's hurtful to them in some way, shape, or form, uh, that needs to be addressed too. And and just because police say, well, maybe that's not where we're going because this is what we do. These are the parameters in which we work. There's got to be support and help for that individual to try to deal with this because their reality is it was hurtful and it was problematic. Yeah. Um... So the the I report example that I was raising earlier, um, where there is uh, an opportunity to describe why the incident was deemed discriminatory or hateful, and how it impacted the victim and or witnesses, and how it's interconnected with other factors, that information is being used uh, in reports. Um, so since its inception, there's a total of uh, 
1,921 incidents that have been reported through iReport. And they, they put out a report every six months, and it has used its research and findings for anti-racism advocacy and to appeal for uh, policy changes uh, when they identify themes um, that exist across sectors. Let me ask you about the, the relationship uh, between organizations such as yours and, and the reporting and, and the, the research that you're doing in this, Emil, as others are doing right across North America, mm-hmm. and, and the, the infrastructure that is currently in place here in, in Hamilton to deal with this. Uh, are, are, are we talking to each other in, in, the, in the right way? Are we connecting? Are we sharing information? Are we trying to find ways to improve what we're doing here? Uh, are we working together collectively, as some other jurisdictions seem to be? Um. I think there's a struggle to work together. Um, like, in an ideal scenario, one would think that um, when one, one was developing an online hate reporting tool like the police, that they would be connecting um, with people from marginalized communities who have lived experience, who could tell them what they need, and then develop the tool. Rather than, here's our tool, um, and they put it out, and it was uh, actually me who called out that it, it wasn't anything that allowed for anything other than crimes to be reported, and they've since changed it uh, to allow for reporting of hate incidents. Uh, but even then, um, you know, I think there needs to be more conversation about how we work together um, to respond to these needs that affect uh, people all over Hamilton. Um, right now, there is work to redevelop the and make independent the Hamilton uh, Anti-Racism Resource Center, which I think uh, will will take us a step forward. Uh, but that organization, that agency, cannot exist in isolation as a place where all things racism get addressed. Um, it has to be something that is uh, relationally coherent that other institutions in Hamilton see as a resource uh, and use as a resource. Well, and, and the community partnerships are going to be a part of this, obviously. I mean, places like the Civic, uh, Center for Civic Inclusion, of course, mm-hmm. uh, the research that you're doing. Uh, boards of education have to play a role in this, too. I know that that, that ruffled a few feathers a, a month or two ago when uh, a number of high school students were candidly talking about their uh, their concerns and, and their experiences with racism, even in the school environment. And I know that co- the boards of education are cognizant of this, but at the same time, that should be the beginning point for dialogue, not just, oh, that's unfortunate. Uh, let, let's, you know, if it happens again, let us know. Uh, we've got to become, I think, more preventative than reactive to some of these incidents. I agree. I think there's a way that we can talk about these incidents where we can acknowledge that we all come into it with a certain level of complicity and and that we're not equally arranged in that um, arrangement, but uh, that if we begin by acknowledging that this is our problem um, and it's landing on all of us to some degree, then there isn't a retreat from being called out for being complicit in a particular way, but an invitation to have a dialogue, to have a discussion, to examine why these experiences are uh, being felt by certain members of our community and what we can do to address it. I think when we get into the game of getting defensive or offended 
uh, by being attached to the word racism or discrimination or hate, um, and we back off uh, because we feel like it's not collegial or we would like a nicer, more gentler word or approach, then we don't get to the level of acknowledging complicity and then moving towards change. Emil, you've been a strong voice in this uh, conversation over the last number of months and years uh, here in this community, and uh, we're seemingly inching forward, not as fast as I think we need to be, but uh, uh, we're going to keep the dialogue going. Thank you so much for the time today, and we'll stay in touch. Thanks for having me. Take care. Emil Joseph, of course, uh, Assistant Professor at McGrath University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.